This is Code Pink Radio, live from WPFW, Washington, D.C., and WBAI, New York City. Also, you can view us today, uh, Facebook Live, at Code Pink on our uh, Facebook page. Thank you, Reagan, for that. Um, I'm uh, Terry Matson, and I'm um, the Latin American campaigner for Code Pink. I will be your host this morning. This morning, we have a very activist-oriented program. We're going to be focusing on root causes of migration from the Northern Triangle with a specific focus on El Salvador. And we'll have two guests from the Committee in Solidarity with the peoples of El Salvador, CISPIS, as many of you know them. And um, we're also going to have a, a brief conversation on conditions at the southern border. We'll be joined by Kelly Curry later in the program. And Kelly is... Um, the uh, local peace economy campaigner for Code Pink. So um, a bunch of activists this morning talking about a very serious uh, foreign policy issue and human rights issue happening south of the border for many of our own um, citizens here in the United States. So first, let's um, let's talk about a couple um, news items that were profoundly expressed in the news this week and, and a few things um, yesterday. Um, the fire on in the Amazon and Brazil and huge controversy um, across the world regarding climate change and destruction of the Amazon, um, what many of us say are the lungs of the earth. We um, are seeing uh, a fire that's the condition of severe drought that the... Um, that Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president, is allowing to burn. Uh, we're hearing that part of the burn is being allowed and even uh, intentionally set to clear rainforest for agribusiness, and that being tied to the U.S. trade war with China and uh, opening up new agribusiness markets in Brazil where uh, the Brazilian economy will be free to trade with China, whereas our own uh, farmers here in the United States possibly will not be. So regarding this as a huge climate catastrophe, for those of us um, simply living on the earth and trying to have normal lives, there's a great uh, project, rally protest September 20th here in Washington, D.C., called Shut Down D.C. It's a climate strike, and if any of you would like to participate in that or know more about it, you can contact um, our intern here at Code Pink. Her name is Reagan, R-A-E-G-A-N. R-A-E-G-A-N, at 23rd. I said the September. She's telling me I'm wrong here. September 23rd. I'm sorry, not September 20th. And it's Reagan at CodePink.org, and it's R-A-E, not R-E-A, R-A-E-G-A-N, not to confuse her with um, the former president. So also happening last week was something very huge and encouraging um, in the, in the world of peace, which we at Code Pink are significant promoters of. Um, at the G7, Zarif, the foreign minister of, of Iran, met with uh, Macron. And this was a huge, uh, I think, breath of fresh air relief for many of us across the planet. They were discussing... Uh, renegotiating, continuing uh, the nuclear deal, the Iranian nuclear deal, which is a huge relief to, to all of us. They also discussed the sanctions affecting Iran. And one of the things that we should probably all understand a little better about this U.S. Um, unilateral financial sanctions being used, not only against Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, Russia, probably about 30 countries 
uh, right now is that it is a form of, of warfare. And what happens with these and what the French are concerned about and other European um, allies of the United States is that Iran is not the Iran is the principal target of sanctions, but the fallout, the ripple out effect of the sanctions, the chilling of the economy, the lack of financial resources and investment affects secondary and tertiary targets. And some of those secondary and tertiary targets are allies of the United States. So this is something that the French are concerned about as well. If you'd like to know more about Iran, um, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of our founder, Medea Benjamin's book, Inside Iran, The Real History and Politics of the Islamic Republic of Iran. It's well worth the read and will give you some good background as to uh, why things are between the United States and Iran today. And then also regarding sanctions, um, a really encouraging conversation happened yesterday uh, in Havana. And President Cuban President Diaz-Canal met with uh, Canadian Foreign Minister Victoria Freeland to discuss Venezuela. And uh, among the discussion topics were sanctions, Venezuela under siege by the United States, the isolationism of, of uh, Venezuela from foreign markets and, the, and international trade, and um, the overt... Um, the overt discussion, expansion, and threat uh, by Washington, D.C. of the Monroe Doctrine. And so that was uh, encouraging to hear a major Venezuelan or the major Venezuelan um, ally, Cuba, and the president um, just directly um, confront the foreign minister of Canada about these issues. One of the things that might, in, uh, might be of interest to all of you listeners is that uh, if you want to know more about Cuba and Cuba and the Venezuelan alliance, Code Pink is co-sponsoring a trip to uh, Cuba in mid-December in honor of the fifth anniversary of the opening of Cuba. I think some of you may remember this was December 17th of 2014 when then pre U.S. President Barack Obama and President Raul Castro of Cuba reopened diplomatic um, ties between the two countries. So in honor of that fifth anniversary, uh, there will be a Code Pink trip to Cuba, and you can find out more about that trip at codepink.org backslash travel. So with that said, I'd like to tell you a little something about what I did last night, um, and that was in the local news here, uh, an event called All Children Are Free, and this was a cultural, human rights, immigration um, event held at Tacoma Park here in D.C. It was a terrific solidarity event, and one of our guests in the studio was there uh, last night as well, and um, we can speak a little more about it. But it was, it was hugely attended, and it was really great energy in solidarity with all peoples living here in the United States. And I had an opportunity to talk to two Salvadoran um, sisters last night about their families, their stories, as, how, as to how they came to the United States. So it was a great conversation to have in advance of, our, of speaking with our guests from CISPIS this morning. There's about 250,000 families under threat of losing temporary protective status here in the United States. Uh, and being those families being sent back to El Salvador. So we'll talk a little more about that. And I would like to um, introduce our, CIS, our our guests this morning. We have two um, two activists from CISPIS with us, um, Samantha Pineda. And Samantha, you're the program director for CISPIS. And I have Eric uh, Villalobos with CISPIS as well. He is the youth coordinator for t uh, TPS, youth TPS coordinator, I think I is how you say. part of the youth leadership. Okay. So why don't you tell us, uh, maybe Samantha, you can start with a little brief history of CISPIS, um, how it was founded and why. And then, um, and then um, we can maybe talk about the root causes of migration, what's happening in El Salvador now and historically. This is not a new story. Yeah. It's just being particularly amplified right now uh, and with good reason and out of need. And so 
Let's um, hear maybe a little history of CISPIS, why you were founded, and what's happening. Sure. Thank you so much for um, inviting CISPIS out to. Oh, I'm um, so pleased that you were able to join <laughs> us. It's, it's an honor to have you both here. Yeah. Um, so CISPIS um, was originally founded in uh, 1980 um, as a grassroots organization um, to accompany the Salvadoran people's struggle for social and economic justice. Um, in the 1980s, obviously, during that uh, 1980s to uh, the early 90s, there was a civil war, a civil conflict in um, uh, El Salvador and in other places in Central America. Um, and so uh, people here in the U.S. Um, kind of organized and Salvadoran refugees kind of uh, began to prompt people in the U.S. to really take action and be accountable to the policies of um, the U.S. government in El Salvador. Um, and so CISPIS was founded as an organization to accompany the people's struggle in El Salvador. And we have, um, we're, next year we're going on our 40th year, um, you know, doing that work um, and yeah, and uh, I think that's significant that we're still doing the work forty yeah. years later. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, still working on U.S. foreign policy and its and its and the approach to Central America. Yeah, and it's a very very important time to continue um, this history of solidarity and uh, begin to rethink. You know, what are some new strategies that we can take on to really challenge the new challenges uh, or to to challenge you know the new kinds of policies that the U.S. is pushing on Central America. So, what are some of those new policies, and how is that affecting? the historical wave of migration and I, I would say exacerbating mm -hmm. um, citizenship there and here yeah. for Salvadorans. Yeah. Um, well, for, you know, we've, because of the Central American caravans that have um, recently kind of been, you know, in the news, um, I think that the topic of, like, root causes has been very much on the news, and mm -hmm. a lot of uh, politicians have been talking about what are the root causes. Um, and oftentimes we hear about, you know, the, the root causes of all these people migrating from Central America being, like, the insecurity in the region, the corruption, um, and all of that stuff. But one of the things that CSPIS really tries to push is, like, this idea of what you were saying earlier, like, this isn't this wave of migration and the the um, topic of migration is not something new. Um, and this, the caravans and these new waves of uh, refugees are following in this long uh, legacy of uh, forced displacement in the region. And we have to really think about and be open about um, what role the U.S. has played in in pushing those people out. Um, and so for us, it's really important to really think about, like, what are the real root causes of migration? And for us, we consider that U.S. intervention has a plays a very, very big role. Um, and U.S. intervention in all forms. Yes. Militarily, economically, politically, political. all mm -hmm. forms. Yes. Know. Um, and also, you know, the insecurity in the region. And uh, the insecurity comes from, you know, the, the destabilization, the, de the economic um, poverty and all of that. Um, and also the environmental degradation. You know, a lot of we've also been seeing a lot of like people are leaving the region because of the drought and because of the water crisis. So we also have to think about like how are extractivist policies also pushing people out and, you know, efforts to privatize water and things like that. And so the extractivist policies are between the two governments or transnational corporations? Um, yeah, I think it's transnational corporations. I think Canada, especially in Guatemala and Honduras, have played a very big role in trying to extract uh, 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 gold and other kinds of uh, mining projects in, in, in those regions. It hasn't been as strong in El Salvador uh, recently. Uh, in 2017, El Salvador was the first country in the world to ban all metallic mining. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's still um, a topic that is really important to discuss regionally. Um, as our allies in El Salvador, we say, like, even if there's a ban in El Salvador, if there's um, mining projects in, in Guatemala that poison rivers that then go into El Salvador, like, we, we, like it's not enough to ban metallic mining in El Salvador. It has to happen yeah, at a regional level. Well. Mm -hmm. It wasn't there, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there an environmental lawsuit or a case with the one of the rivers in Salvador, there was a suit over exactly that. Um, it Was Isn't it the um, Pacifica Rim? I think so, yeah. Pacific Rim, not Pacifica Rim, Pacific but Pacific Rim. Rim. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what that was a case that um, kind of fed in, um, 
produced this metallic mining ban in El Salvador. Uh, Pacific Rim was this mining company that was um, trying to extract uh, 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 resources from uh, Cabañas, um, and the communities in Cabañas like really um, um, pushed against um, that metallic mining and organized at a national level. And th that corporation then sued El Salvador um, for you know the the permits mm -hmm. to be able to extract uh, mining from from that those El Salvador. So um, what I'm hearing is that the corporation was trans transcending yeah. the actual sovereign government of, of El Salvador yeah, yeah, and, and these, its people. Yeah, and yeah. El Salvador won that lawsuit, um, luckily, and then that kind of fed into the, the, the law, yeah. the ban, wow. the metallic ban. So some great activism and care for the earth there. Yeah. So, so, so with um, root causes of migration, we've talked about U.S. intervention in multiple forms. We've talked a little bit about um, drought, um, climate change, and water rights. And the, can we talk just a little bit more about clim the climate change effect on on the Northern Triangle? Because that is affecting crops, mm -hmm. and the, the growing season has radically changed. And so how is climate change affecting agriculture, small farms, and yeah. Um, um, I think at a, like, at, at the drought is kind of um, a very serious thing in Central America. And I think in Guatemala and uh, specifically in Guatemala, there's been a lot of people who have been migrating because the crops are dying and because of this drought. Um, and some governments in Central America, especially in El Salvador, like they're trying to play downplay the problem of the drought and saying, well, it's not as serious as people are saying. And you know, there a lot of people are leaving because you know they they live off off the land, and if they don't have any water to produce, then they don't have any work. They can't you know sustain themselves. Um, so it's definitely like an issue throughout the region. And I think um, with some of the things that we're seeing in Honduras specifically is like a lot of people organizing to also prevent the privatization of rivers and other kinds of water resources, which is another like, yes, there's the, the environmental degradation and, and the things that people aren't able to control. But then there's also this effort on another end to try to privatize what little resources there are. Um, of water in in the region yeah mm -hmm. so water rights yeah water yeah. rights for the for the survival of, yeah. of average people yeah. yeah yeah and it's the reason you know they they killed Berta Cáceres yes you know, and Honduras because she was defending water free flow of the, the river rivers. yeah mm -hmm. so it's all connected and one other thing maybe we should discuss about root causes of migration is is crime yeah yeah and a lot of that is brought on by um, we, uh, weak economic growth or economic growth that's heavily controlled by um, transnational corporations and their desire for profitability, which suppresses wages and, and labor rights and those sort of things. But also we have gang influences mm -hmm. in Salvador. And maybe you could help our audience understand that some, uh, some, if not all, of the gang violence has its roots here in the United States, yeah. principally Los Angeles. Yes, definitely. And with, I'm thinking specifically of MS-13. And maybe you could give us a, a little bit of background to that particular gang, how it came to be created and why it's back in Central America now. Yeah. Because this is something that people really don't understand. It is a homegrown creation yeah. of the United States. Yeah. Exported. Yeah. And it goes back to this point we were talking about, like, immig forced immigration or forced displacement being, you know, historical. You know, people started immigrating in the 80s. And um, some of the youth uh, and uh, young men who had been either involved in the conflict in El Salvador or were young and had experienced um, um, the impacts of war in El Salvador uh, had immigrated to Los Angeles. And um, in Los Angeles, as uh, around the country at that time, there were a lot of very, uh, there was a lot of inequality and uh, there were a lot of gangs that kind of organized to like protect themselves and um, and all of that. And um, people, Sal Salvadorans in Los Angeles kind of organized themselves to also defend themselves from other rival gangs and also to, um, I don't know, if I imagine find some kind of 
community amongst themselves. Um, and in the late 90s, um, the Clinton administration began to deport a lot of those um, former youth, uh, uh, youth who had come up to um, Los Angeles, and some of those youth had been involved in, in gangs. And so when they were deported to El Salvador in a country that was in this post-war period, um, in a country that had a very weak social structure, um, they were basically uh, deported into a place where there there was a like breeding ground for criminality and also there weren't a lot of opportunities for the people who, who were deported um, and so obviously under those conditions um, the gangs the MS-13 gangs specifically began to kind of flourish um, and the response of the Salvadoran governments um, probably a decade after that was just to repress and repress and repress mm -hmm. those gangs and for a long time they didn't really give them much attention um, until they realized it was already out of hand, and then they began to just try to crack down or what they called like mano dura policies um, to try to just, you know, like get rid of the gang problem. And when in reality, the issue of insecurity and in gangs is uh, a problem that needs a social response. Um, and uh, youth need to give, you know, get opportunities to um, reintegrate into society and have opportunities for growth, education, you know, work. Um, so there's been I, El Salvador has very much failed youth in, in, in that way that they've just kind of kept pushing these kinds of hardline policies that really lead Versus to nothing. The human development. Yeah. And reintegration and prevention, you know. So maybe we could turn to Eric. Uh, to talk about mm -hmm. Salvadoran youth and what he is working on here in the States and what um, what you see and experience in Salvador as well. I think just, uh, you know, with the temporary protective status and the threat of um, that status being taken away from so many people living in the United States, it's really important to understand why people come here and the destabilization and the the the, the life risk and um, insecurity in Salvador has has displaced so many people. The majority, my understanding is the majority of Salvadorans live here in the States versus in El Salvador proper. Mm -hmm. And there are 250,000, Eric, households, is that? Not people, households under threat of losing TPS? Well, uh, with regards to Salvadorans, there's 250 about 250,000 Salvadorians are beneficiaries of temporary protected status, and being that most of them are of about, I want to say around 30 mm -hmm. and a little bit older, and there are younger TPS holders as well, but the majority are of age where they are parents. Mm -hmm. So when we look at 250,000, we're not only talking about 250,000 Salvadorians or individuals, we're talking about families. And in total, we also try to mention the other TPS holders as well, that it's not only Salvadorians, we also have Nicaraguans, Hondurians. These are all people who... Guatemalans? Uh, not so much. No, not... The, not the, so yeah. In total, I think it's about 13 countries, and uh, Salvadorians are the largest beneficiary of the program, and Salvadorians received TPS after the earthquake in, two earthquakes in 2001. Uh, Hondurians received the program or became beneficiaries of the program back in 2003 after Hurricane Mitch. Mm -hmm. uh, Haitians were under the program after 2010, the earthquake that they uh, suffered. There are people from Nepal. There are people from Syria. And, yeah, the program is um, something that... Uh, the Department of Homeland Security, and I think it goes through the Attorney General as well, that is where um, they designate specific countries under TPS, and it says that um, these people cannot go back to their countries because these countries are going through some sort of political or natural disaster. And in the case of Salvadorians, uh, because of the earthquake, that said that those who were undocumented in the U.S. at the time could not go back to El Salvador because of the, the the situation, because of like the disaster that happened there. So they couldn't really return, and that's what made them. It gave them a legal status, and it allowed them to remain in the U.S. And this was a program that they needed to renew every eighteen months. Uh, they need to go through a criminal background check every 18 months. They need to repeatedly renew this. And um, after every 18 months, uh, I think after every two years, the presidential the, – well, the president and um, the White House needs to actually approve this and see if they extend the program. And it, it's been extended by 
every presidential administration since it was first implemented under, I think it was Bush Sr. So ever since 2001, when Salvadorians received the program, it was extended by Bush, it was extended by Obama, and within a year into the Trump administration, they announced terminations. Uh, I think, um, well, the largest termination was obviously Salvadorians because most of the beneficiaries under the program were Salvadorian. And um, they're, that's what started the organizing around the issue. That's what brought me into the TPS Alliance. Uh, but we still included all of the other beneficiaries as well. Um, so I'm a part of the TPS Alliance. I'm a part of uh, the youth leadership there. Uh, I got involved after um, it was announced that, uh, that they would terminate TPS for Salvadorians back in January of 2018. At the moment, at the time, my parents were TPS recipients. Mm -hmm. But being that I turned 21, uh, now they are permanent residents. That isn't something that, that I look at that as a privilege because of the fact that I just happened to have been a, of age. I was able to support my parents. But I still have aunts, uncles. I still have um, a lot of family members, a lot of people that I've met along the way that are still under threat of deportation. They're still under threat of losing that status. So that's what still motivates me to be a part of the movement. But, um, yeah, uh, a lot of the organizing is has been pushed by many Central Americans, uh, by a lot of Salvadorians as well. Uh, but I always try to mention that we still try to include everybody that's under I the think program that's as well. Really great. Yeah. Act of solidarity. Definitely. We can all help. Definitely. Each other. And um, we, we do our best in, in making sure of that. Um, so there are people from Sudan, uh, from Somalia, I believe, that are under the pro that are beneficiaries of the program as well. We don't have much representation, but we still try to, you know, move forward and, and try to make sure that well, their voices the are heard. I think yeah. it's really important that you're sharing with the audience just how yes, many exactly. citizens of how many different countries exactly. are are here on this debt and why exactly. they're here. And yeah. I think, I wonder um, if you can explain to our listeners what exactly, if we even know exactly why uh, the, current the current administration is suddenly anxious yeah. or to to revoke this status from so many people and force people to go home or and, and in some cases yeah. that isn't home many people there you're here and speaking a different language living a different culture and to just say now you're going back to exactly sudan or el salvador how do people what is the expectation for reintegration in these countries and how would a country the size of el salvador ever be able to exactly absorb two hundred and fifty thousand, a quarter of a million families exactly. you imagine yeah. yeah none of it makes sense right it, it really, to me, the way I see it is that it, it doesn't make any other sense. When it, when the cancellation happened, I was still surprised because I remember the narrative that I would listen to between. So I'm from Long Island, New York, and I you hear a lot of um, the white majority down there talking about how they support Trump for economic reasons. And the social things are things that they don't exactly agree with, but they don't believe that a presidential administration would be capable of actually going out and deporting people who are here legally, let's say. Yeah. And they're only going after people who are undocumented. And this was the narrative among the Trump, among the Trump campaign that said that, no, um, undocumented immigrants are the problem. We need to emphasize legal immigration. TPS recipients are legal immigrants. They have been legal immigrants for over 17 years, in the case of Salvadorians, for over 17 years, and yet they had become under threat of deportation. People who had been paying taxes for over 17 years, people who started businesses, people who have U.S. citizen children, and that's something to look at and really consider. Is like, is this administration really going after undocumented immigrants? Is it going after illegal immigration? Or are they really just going after immigration, legal yeah. or not? And the reality is that they're going after immigrants. They are, the, after the TPS decisions had been made, it was just clear that this administration is just straight up anti-immigrant. And they're going to well, do- Well, I would argue anti-immigrants of a certain of certain yeah. cultures. Definitely, definitely. Principally exactly. Southern Hemisphere. And that, that's true, too, yeah. because if you look at the 13 countries that are under TPS, yeah. none of them are European countries. No. None of them. Where We all know where they're coming from. These are coming from the Middle East, from Asia, from Africa, from Central America, from Latin America. Global South. The yeah. Global yeah. South, exactly. Global South and it's clear that 
the administration is doing whatever means necessary to go after brown and black immigrants. And the TPS decision shows that. Um, That was actually one of the claims that were made under the court case that um, was recently brought up again about two weeks ago. I was in California with the TPS Alliance that there was a court hearing on the decision. The Trump administration officials were trying to appeal the decision that ended up blocking the decision to terminate TPS. And uh, right now the judges are coming up with a decision as to whether or not uh, they can block the infringement on TPS right now. Mm. So currently uh, the the program has been announced to be terminated, but a federal judge in California was able to block that decision. Oh, correct. And they extended it. So now uh, TPS for Salvadorians, for... um, I think it's Salvadorians, Haitians, people from Nepal, and um, Sudan, I believe. I think it's four countries. There's also another decision that covers Hondurians and Nepal. Uh, that was brought up at um, at the federal court two weeks ago again. But what that said was that they were able to extend TPS until January of 2020. And if for some reason this case falls against us where they decide that no, this is going to be terminated. Uh, the decision is still going to say that TPS will only last until January of 2020, but we are able to appeal the case again and hopefully be able to get an extension until maybe 2021, until maybe after the elections happen. I think that's that's kind of the goal. So there's no sense of security. There no still is sense no sense of long-term the, security. The only sense of long-term security right now is legislation that would guarantee permanent residency and uh that children in schools trying to continue education families with small businesses as you said so economic security Mm -hmm. social security there isn't any of that there there isn't any of that so the good thing is that um the alliance has been advocating in both uh, the legislative branch and the judicial branch um, obviously, we have a lot of problems with the executive branch, and that, that, that is tough. I think we're just waiting on the elections to see if there is some kind of candidate that could either you know, replace the, the administration we have right now. But uh, the goal right now is to try to make sure that we're able to um, extend this decision as far as we can under the judicial branch. And we have been successful to a certain extent with that. And under the legislative end, we have been trying to just advocate for um, H.R. 6, which is the Dream and Promise Act that passed the House, um, which is like the I think one of the largest immigration bills to pass the House in over nine years which is very great. It includes both TPS holders and DACA recipients, streamers as well. So this is something that we had been fighting for for a while now because under the mainstream narrative of immigration, DACA and DREAMers were pretty much the only ones that were included under that exactly. discussion. TPS wasn't really mentioned as much. So, and now it is. And now it is. So, so, and that all comes out of the fight from um, the alliance. We try to make sure that, that it is clear that we, we have been doing great work on that end. And we're really just trying to advocate for the Dream and Promise Act, which is right now the job is for the Senate to pass it. We are under a Republican Senate. And so the hope for that actually passing is not really so certain. But we really do hope that we can try to see if we can actually get that passed and see if we can move forward with that. Um, I yeah. don't really see a lot of hope of that happening under these next yeah. two years. But People need to well, take action. Yeah. Yeah. How and how, how be, why don't we talk about how to take action? We'll take a small break here. And, um, and then when we come back, we can talk about the best way to take action and then maybe talk about current conditions on the U.S. border as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Thank you. We'll continue our conversation in a minute. Por los que han ido cayendo 
en que venga la alegría, alabar el sufrimiento, en que venga la alegría, alabar el sufrimiento. Dale que la marcha es lenta, pero sigue siendo marcha. Dale que empujando el sol se acerca la madrugada. Dale que la lucha tuya es pura como una muchacha. Cuando se entrega el amor con el alma liberada. Dale salvadoreño, dale que no hay pájaro pequeño. Dale que después de alzar el vuelo, dale se detenga en su volar. Dale salvadoreño, dale que no hay pájaro pequeño. Dale que después de alzar el vuelo, dale se detenga en su volar. Al verde que yo le canto es el color de tus maizales. No al verde de las boinas de matanzas tropicales. Las que fueron a Vietnam a quemar los arrozales. Y ya andan por estas tierras como andar por sus corrales. Dale salvadoreño, dale que no hay pájaro pequeño, dale que después de alzar el vuelo, dale se detenga en su volar. Hermano salvadoreño, viva tu sombrero azul. Dale que tu limpia sangre germinará sobre el mar Y será una enorme rosa de amor por la humanidad Hermano salvadoreño, viva tu sombrero azul Tendrán que llenar el mundo con masacres del Zumpul Welcome back to Code Pink Radio, live from uh, WPFW, Washington, D.C., and WBAI, New York City. Um, we come to you live every Thursday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern. So we're going to continue um, for the next uh, 20 minutes or so conversation with uh, Samantha and Eric from CISPIS, D.C., and also um, joining us um, on the air from um, the San Francisco Bay Area in California is Kelly Curry. And Kelly is the uh, local peace economy campaigner for Code Pink. Welcome, Kelly. How are you? I'm good today. How are you all doing? Good to hear your conversation. Thank well, you. thank you for joining us. So, Kelly, um, why don't you tell us a little about the local peace economy campaign? And our listeners should also know Kelly recently returned from the southern border. And so we're going to um, have her join our conversation um, with Samantha and Eric as well to talk about the border, why people are there, and what the conditions are that um, you have recently witnessed. But tell us a little bit about the local peace economy campaign before we start. Uh, local peace economy um, is really about um, re-engaging people in conversations in their community. Uh, the war economy has been really good at separating us all, colonization, uh, just breaking down our ability to connect to ourselves. And so uh, the local peace economy engages folks in circles, in communities, just talking about issues that are important in their community to uh, you know, make the world a better place and do the things that we need to do to uh, keep moving in the positive, as your guests were saying. Well, that's terrific, and your work is just is so well-known that um, it's an honor that you have the time to join us this morning. So, Kelly, you um, just returned from um, the border, and where exactly were you? I went to uh, Tijuana, a little bit um, outside of, of the central Tijuana, uh, to visit a friend 
who was invited to uh, live on the premises at um, a shelter um, in divine, the neighborhood of Divine Providence. And it's a couple that started um, a shelter probably like six or seven years ago, I believe. So this is and a shelter for migrants? For migrants, yes, for migrants. And, of course, there's a huge population explosion where they are, people coming through. And so I was invited. His name is Pancho, and um, he's, from, he's, a, he's an, an astrophysicist. He's um, uh, grounded here in the Bay Area and actually did a pilgrimage and walked to, um, to Mexico, to that shelter, to that place, to kind of help and resource, uh, build bridges, bring his friends, myself, you all, everyone listening, to support um, in the rehumanization, I think, because there's a huge campaign of dehumanization going on at the border for people and for children. So um, that's where I was. Wow. And so where can you um, describe the, um, the demographics of the, of the people you were with, what countries they were from, and, and, and the reasons for them being there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there were folks from Haiti there. There were folks from Yemen, as far as Yemen. Um, there were folks from uh, various parts of Mexico, from Venezuela, uh, Honduras, all the places that we understand uh, the migrations are happening. And just listening to the conversation uh, with your guests, who are so insightful and so excited for the work that they're doing. Um, but a lot of it, of course, is about climate change. There's the gangs, there's warfare. But the folks from Guatemala, for instance, just you know unable to farm, and climate change, which is not going to, you know, end anytime soon, um, is a big reason for this happening. So it's so important for us to organize pathways, reopen the pathways. When I say that, I mean pathways to the heart, you know, to support, to get down uh, to Mexico, to send things to the children, to send letters, just to be engaged in some way in, um, you know, supporting their ability to be engaged in living and having a beautiful experience on Earth. It's, it's our planet, all of us together. So that's really the vibration of local peace economy, is just engaging the power that we each have, one of us, to um, you know, be in the world in a, better play, in a better way. Well, I think one of the things that you said was the humanization of the mm-hmm. issue mm-hmm. and of the people, because there is, uh, coming from the United States, specifically from Washington, D.C., a real right. attempt to dehumanize um, what's happening at the at the border. These are just simply um, not human beings. Um, when you look, and specifically when you look at how children are being treated, it's 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 horrifying, and yet it's the the whole desensification of it to the to the human emotion is 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 right. really probably the most scary thing to me is the dehumanization mm-hmm. of it, and so maybe Eric, you could talk a little about conditions at the border. And you had earlier mentioned all, the number of different countries um, migrate with migrants and um, either with TPS um, or seeking temporary protective status. And it seems like, Kelly, you're seeing quite a few. You saw quite a few of people in that case. And the other thing that was mentioned was climate change, which we still do not even admit exists here Mm. on the planet as a nation. There is no policy of overtly admitting. Mm. And um, it's very clear, and Samantha, you talked about this earlier with the the drought and water rights. And so maybe we should focus a little bit on climate change for a a couple minutes and and, um, talk about which countries are most affected by this at the moment. Yeah, um, when mentioning the border, I think it's, and connecting that a little bit to TPS, I think it's um, something to mention that it's incredible to see how Central Americans and immigrants in general are being affected not only in the U.S., people who have already been here for a while, but they're also being affected back home. They're also being affected at the border. We have nowhere to move anymore. It's just incredible to see that, that, like, we're... Like we're being affected on all fronts, and and it's something that is is just it's incredible to see, and it, it, it's something that that it, it's something that it's really hard to understand why why it's still happening, and um, especially when we try to advocate in the TPS Alliance, we always want to acknowledge that it doesn't stop here. That if we're able to find a solution for those who are already in the U.S. who have already been here legally, we need to make sure that. After this, we move forward with the 11 million that are still undocumented, and we still acknowledge the fact that we still have people who are trying to cross, who are waiting at the border, who have been detained, and um, who are still trying to find their legal entry, and to still acknowledge that 
there are still negative and horrible conditions that are affecting our countries back home. And the climate is something that is definitely something that needs to be acknowledged, that it isn't only gang violence, it, it isn't only extreme poverty, that the, there, there have been droughts, um, there has been a, a water crisis in, in Central America, in El Salvador. I think Sam could talk about that a little bit better than I would, but it's definitely something that, that um, needs to be part of the mainstream narrative. Um, one thing that I wanted to kind of acknowledge is the fact that uh, there, there's also this liberal democratic discourse as to what the solution to these causes are, and that isn't in, inside of that conversation, and it needs to be a part of that conversation. Yeah. Um, the mainstream media, not only American mainstream media, but also like Hispanic American mainstream media, Univision and Telemundo aren't really acknowledging this as much. When they were covering the caravans, they were only talking about these uh, Central Americans who are coming towards the border and fleeing violence and poverty. The climate wasn't part of the conversation. Right. The dictatorship in Honduras wasn't a part of the conversation. The, you know, these socioeconomic conditions weren't a part of the conversation. And these are big networks that a lot of the Hispanic community depend on. Like Much yeah. of us depend on watching this information. So the, narr the neoliberal narrative is being, exactly. is being pushed on to, exactly. to and, people you know, from your own country. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe we should talk about the neoliberal plans for... Uh, expansion in the Northern Triangle. I oh, think I'm so pleased you brought up Honduras. I mean, um, I think it's pretty much known, certainly to most of our listeners this morning, that um, Honduras is basically a, a government dictatorship installed by the United States in 2009, and the current president has been recently implicated in his own brother's uh, narco-trafficking trial in New York City. And so many of the things that other non-aligned U.S. governments are accused of being, and I will be quite overt in mentioning Venezuela in this, things that other governments are accused of being who are not aligned with the United States. The things happening in Honduras, we know for a fact, and um, we know that we're now pretty sure the president uh, is not the cleanest legally. Of course. And we know that he's been, his government has been installed by the United States, and yet we don't talk about that as you just mentioned. And um, we're not talking about, you know, the the uh, the plans for neoliberal economic development in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras specifically. And maybe we should spend a few minutes talking about that because that's affecting uh, the influence of transnational corporations, uh, land and water rights, um, specifically in those three countries. Others as well, but those three. So yeah. maybe, Samantha, we could talk a little bit about as we touched on earlier. Yeah. Um, well, I think the objective of U.S. empire right now is to um, to um, extract natural resources from Central America, and I think that also includes securing uh, cheap labor for transnational corporations. And do you think maybe the cheap labor issue is part of this mass deportation project? Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's also part of this, you know, what uh, Eric was saying earlier, like we can't... there. People in Central America are don't have the conditions in which to live dignified lives in their countries, and they're forced to migrate. But when they're trying to move, they're being stopped at the borders, and so there's really no place for them to go. Um, and the U.S. Uh, government, along with its puppets in Central America, are trying to do everything in their power to commercialize all natural resources, make sure that there are econ like political like policies uh, in place that keep people. Um, um, in really precarious labor situations. Um, and when they try to flee, uh, they, the U.S. is trying to create, um, and is, has already been for many, many years, trying to uh, construct this system in which they'll stop people from migrating. And so when we talk about what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border, we can't just stay there. Like We also have to talk about the southern Mexico border um, and how border militarization and militarization in general is being expanded throughout Central America, right? Um, like I would argue that the U.S. border is actually 
at in, the southern end of Panama. Yeah. Hop skips over Nicaragua, which is part of Daniel Ortega's problem with yeah. <laughs> the United States, is that it stops there, stops at the southern Honduras border, yeah. leaps over Nicaragua and starts again and flows all the way down to the southern border of Panama. Right, right. And there's different articulations of this kind of border militarization. In Guatemala, it's more like they're training police forces to patrol the, the border between Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. In El Salvador right now, the president has decided that they're also going to begin, uh, you know, implementing policies to militarize their borders in, in, in El Salvador. And for uh, for many, many years, this, there's like the C4 agreement between Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and Nicaragua, in which and the, the citizens, is, uh... the Central America, I forget what the complete name is, but it's like a Central America uh, uh, agreement in which um, U.S. citizens, uh, Central American citizens, as long as they have a dewey or identification, they can cross uh, into any of those countries as long as they have an ID. Without a visa. Yeah. So those four countries. Okay. And is this part of uh, the Central America Free Trade Agreement? Did that come out of that? No, I believe this is uh, kind of predates that, I believe. Um, And what the U.S. is trying to do is kind of is push Guatemala to um, change that agreement so that they can begin to prevent people from um, being able to cross without a visa or putting more um, more more restrictions uh, in between those countries from having people to migrate. So would you say the goal is to deport people back to these four countries and hold them there? Yeah. Is that what I'm and, hearing you yeah. say? You're and holding the them. Labor. Yeah. So, yeah. So the labor force would have to, so a cheap labor force for economic, neoliberal economic yeah. development, privatization, um, that labor force would would literally be it, forcibly by arms, it sounds like, yeah. to stay there. Yeah. And so, and, Eric, you're nodding at me. What yeah. did you want to add to that? Uh, it's just so the current president in El Salvador was someone who had as a campaign promise to not only the Salvadorian people but to the U.S. Uh, when he won the election, he actually went and spoke I mean, his first speech in the U.S. was to the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative foundation that has been acknowledged for sending money to the U.S. forces during the 1980s, supporting the Reagan administration for all the acts that they were doing in Central America during that time. And he promised to them, as well as promising to the Salvadorian people, that migration from El Salvador to the U.S. would end under his administration. Now... The way the Salvadorians believed that would be is that he would improve the conditions in the country to prevent migration. And we can say that he's doing that, quote, unquote, through his supposed security policies that are apparently going to fix the security problem that we have with gang violence. Um, by Gang violence created exactly, here in the States exactly. and exported back to by Central America. implementing social programs that are supposedly going to improve the conditions in communities and for youth so that they don't get involved in gangs, so that they don't be a part of the delinquency and the crime that's going on inside of the country. And the reality is that we're not so sure if that's even happening. And... Um, this whole security thing that he's trying to do by implementing a border patrol around the country is kind of changing that. It's not like he's trying to improve the conditions in the country, but trying to say that, yeah, we're going to kind of work on this, but at the same time, it seems like we're going to try to do do whatever means necessary to prevent Salvadorians from even leaving the country. So what what is what is he actually doing really what is actually going creating on? a cheap labor force mm-hmm. yeah. so i i'm so pleased that you've both been here for the hour with me and we have we have a couple minutes left and i wonder um kelly are you still there i'm here okay I'm here. Really and, interesting uh, conversation. no i'm so pleased you are and maybe samantha well, you can just talk briefly about what we can do to put pressure on um, on our own government here in the states to raise awareness and influence legislation in a more humane manner. Yeah, there's um, Eric was talking a little bit about the American Dream and Promise Act, um, um, and the National TPS Alliance is one of the organizations that is really uh, pushing that um, that bill. Um, so that's that's a bill that would guarantee permanent residency for TPS recipients, all of them, not excluding any of them. Um, and so if folks um, go to the TPS Alliance website, they can find more information about what they can do. And um, what's the web address for that? Do you have the I TPS? Think, I want to say it's tpsalliance.org. 
uh, I would Google National TPS Alliance. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on all forms of social media as well as um, a website that they should be able to find. Yeah. And is there something relatively easy like calling uh, your congressman? You can also call just um, email csbest.org and oh, we can get you more information. Okay. Um, the other bill that's really important that I think people should really pay attention to is the Berta Cáceres Human Rights in Honduras Act. Um, and you can also contact CSPES for more information on that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. And thank you to our guests, Kelly, Eric, and thank Samantha. You. And uh, please join us next week live, 11 a.m. Thursdays, Eastern. For WPFW News, I'm Chris Bangert Drowns with some brief headlines. Hurricane Dorian is continuing to gain strength in the Atlantic, threatening the Bahamas and Florida with what could become a Category 4 storm. Yesterday, Dorian slammed into the Virgin Islands but did not directly hit the main island of Puerto Rico. However, boat parts of both territories remain without power. While Puerto Ricans prepared for the storm, President Trump continued to attack the island, describing it on Twitter as, quote, one of the most corrupt places on earth. He went on to, de- to say to describe himself as, quote, the best thing that's ever happened to Puerto Rico. Political opposition to UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's move to suspend Parliament is surging, with protests held around Britain and a petition to block the move gaining more than one million signatures. Yesterday, the Queen approved Johnson's plan to suspend Parliament beginning next week through October 14th significantly limiting the ability of lawmakers to oppose his Brexit aspirations. The UK is scheduled to leave the European Union on October 31st, giving lawmakers just two weeks. Some opponents of Brexit accused Johnson of staging a coup. And that was Code Pink. Here over WBAI New York, the Gary Knowles Show is coming up at the top of the hour. Please stay tuned. I'm Sean Rhodes, co-host and engineer of the award-winning Midnight Ravers. It's going to be back in aisle time on Labor Day, Monday, September 2nd when WBAI broadcasts all day from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., the Caribbean Carnival, live from Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn. That's when New York City will host what is now the biggest, most spectacular street celebration in the country. So be sure to tune in to WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, on Monday, September 2nd, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., live and direct from the Caribbean Carnival on Eastern Parkway for the music, culture, and bacchanal. This is Tony Roberts, and you're listening to WBAI in New York, the voice of truth since 1960. The technical and creative team that has brought to these airwaves many of the most profound radio dramas to ever be transmitted will come together once again to present on Saturday... November 16th, 2019, something you have never witnessed before. Prepare yourself. We are Refining Faith, and we listen to WBAI in New York City, 99.5 FM. Hi, this is Christian McBride, and you're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org on the web. Hi. 
This is David Amram. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 on your FM dial and keep on listening. WBAI New York 99.5 FM 